Boyle published his results in 1660. By then, the Oxford group of intellectuals had largely scattered. Many of them had backed Cromwell and were now fearful of the consequences of a royalist revival. Boyle himself had remained steadily neutral, but even he left Oxford for a while to wait out the new political uncertainties at the country house of a friend. While there, he prepared his book to be called New Experiments, Physico-Mechanical Touching the Spring of Air. Though Boyle was fluent in Latin, as in, as in many other languages, he was unusual for philosophers of the time in that he chose to write in everyday accessible English. Still more unusually, he eschewed the normal way of writing up science, philosophical disclosures among fictitious persons in favor of a straightforward description of his apparatus, pardon me, apparatus, what he did for each experiment and the results he obtained. He wanted people to understand exactly what he had done and even to be able to repeat it. In this sense, he was one of the world's first true scientists. The book was an immediate hit not least because it contained much more than the proof of the pressing power of air. Boyle would never have been satisfied with merely confirming what Torricelli had already discovered. Armed with his new air pump, he had always wanted to go much farther. One of the first new things Boyle discovered was that, unlike water, air seemed to have bounce. He noticed this almost as soon as he tried removing air from inside the glass globe. If you first pulled down the plunger to make a vacuum inside a brass cylinder and, the, and only then opened the valve to the glass globe, air immediately whooshed from the globe into the cylinder. Everyone in the room could hear it. If you closed off the valve, emptied the cylinder and repeated the process, the whooshing still happened, but it was a bit less dramatic with less air rushing out of the globe and the next time you tried, even less air whooshed out. Boyle deducted that the air must contain some kind of particles that squeeze against each other. When the globe was full of air, it was like an overcrowded room. As soon as the valve was opened, particles spilled out. But with each drag of the pump, the remaining particles could spread out and were hence much more reluctant to leave. Boyle didn't understand this quite as we do today. He imagined air to be something like a springy pile of flocks of wool. We now know that a piece of air the size of a sugar lump contains around 25 billion billion molecules, all constantly darting about faster than the speed of sound. Every molecule crashes into another 5 billion times a second. And it is this incessant pinball barging that gives air its spring. I'm going to read that again, eighth graders. Boyle didn't understand this quite as we do today. He imagined air to be something like a springy pile flocks of wool. We now know that a piece of air the size of a sugar lump contains around 25 billion billion molecules all constantly darting about faster than the speed of sound. Every molecule crashes into another five billion times a second. 
and it is this incessant pinball barging that gives air its spring. It's why the billions of bouncing molecules inside a tire can hold up a truck, and why the weight of air doesn't only press downward, but it acts in every direction. Isn't that so fascinating, eighth graders? I think so. Okay, Boyle wanted to find out what role, if any, this springy air plays in the perception of sound. Nobody really knew how sound moves around, although there was a vague notion that it had something to do with the atmosphere. He decided to try a careful experiment. Into his great glass globe, he gently lowered a ticking watch suspended from a thread. The watch was one of the latest models, which he had to hand which had a hand to mark out the seconds as well as the more unusual, usual minutes and hours. Using this, the experimenters would be able to assure themselves that the watch was still working as it dangled inside the globe. At first, the sound of the ticking was clear even a foot away from the globe, but when the pump began removing air, something changed. The ticking grew fainter and fainter, at last, when the pump had removed as much air as possible, Boyle and his helpers pressed their ears to the side of the globe. They could see the newfangled second hand as it continued to work its way around the watch face. But though everyone in the room strains to pick up the slightest hint of ticking, nobody could hear a thing. The air that left the globe had taken with it the power to transmit sound. Woo! We now know that sound is made from vibrations. It can be transmitted through anything that wobbles. If your ear is touching something that's vibrating, you have no need of the air in between. But most of the sounds we care about happen at a distance, and for that our atmosphere is essential. Anything on earth that makes a noise sets the air around it quivering, and our entire thick atmosphere acts like a giant vibrating drum. That is such a good way to describe it. It's connected not by a skin, but by those constant collisions in the pinball world of air molecules. You can send sounds across an entire room with just a little puff of effort, because your wobbling larynx passes on its vibrations to billions of barging air molecules, which then crash them onto your neighbors. Without air, a cannon could go off right next to your ear and you wouldn't hear or feel a thing. Even the power of explosions come from air. When a bomb is detonated, it sounds countless molecules of air flying in your direction to knock you off your feet. Without air, our planet would be as silent as the grave. Next, Boyle wondered just what role air played in flight. Humans were obviously earthbound, and yet birds and insects had no trouble gliding through the air. Were they somehow floating like fish in the ocean above our heads? And if so, why couldn't we float too? To try to find out how air was necessary for flight, Boyle started with a hummingbee. He was a bit disappointed not to be able to try a butterfly, which seemed to rely for flight more completely on wafts of air, but unfortunately the season was still too cold. 
He put the bee inside the chamber with a bunch of flowers that hung from a thread near the top of the globe. He then prodded and teased the poor creature until she landed on the flowers and remained there. Next, he gradually began to draw out the air. At first, the bee took no notice, and then suddenly the experiment was over. The bee tumbled helplessly down the wall of the globe without making any effort to use her wings. By the time he had managed to let air back into the chamber, she was already dead. This wasn't exactly conclusive. Had the bee failed to fly because it had no air or because it was suffocating? Boyle tried again, this time with a lark whose wing had been broken by a hunter's shot, but which was otherwise, he reported, very lively. But once she was inside the chamber and losing air, it wasn't long before she, too, began to droop. Soon she began to writhe in convulsions, throwing herself over in frantic somersaults. Hastily, Boyle's assistant turned the stopcock and let in fresh air, but once again it was too late. The whole tragedy, Boyle reported, had been, had been concluded within 10 minutes of an hour. Boyle realized that his air pump was going to tell him nothing about flight. His subjects were dying before they even had a chance to flap their wings. So he diverted his attention to trying to understand breathing. What made air so vital? He wondered if an animal used more, if an ant, pardon. He wondered if an animal more use, used to enclosed spaces might fare better, but a mouse taken in such trap as had rather frighted than hurt him went the way of the bird. Observers were always welcome at Boyle's experiments, but he was now finding their presence rather awkward. One of his tests with another bird had to be abandoned when the subject was rescued by some fair lady who was horrified by the creature's convulsions and insisted that Boyle immediately let air back in. After this, he did his more controversial experiments at night. He began to wonder if his animals were dying because their exhalations somehow clogged the globe. So he tried leaving a mouse in the closed vessel overnight with a bed of paper to rest on and some cheese in case it was hungry and carefully placed the vessel by the fire to make sure it didn't suffer from the cold. The next morning, the mouse was not only alive, but had eaten almost all of the cheese. It was all very baffling. There were plenty of theories at the time for why breathing is necessary, but none of them was really enticing, which is perhaps not surprising since none of them was right. Boyle himself inclined toward the idea that we breathe to cool down our lungs, which might otherwise become overheated. After all, cold-blooded animals such as fish have no lungs. On the other hand, Boyle correctly suspected that fish might somehow be making use of the air dissolved in water around them. It wasn't only animals that needed air. Boyle also discovered that flames flickered out as soon as he drew the air out of his globe. In some cases, for glowing coals, for instance, readmitting air would rekindle the flame. But if he left the coals for more than four or five minutes, the spark irrevocably died. Boyle couldn't help but notice the similarity between the flame and life. The flame of a lamp, he remarked, 
will last almost as little after the exception of air as the life of an animal. Air was clearly vital for both processes, but Boyle had no idea why. At least, he remarked, the spring that he had discovered made air extremely difficult to remove. Each time his pump operated, the remaining air was more reluctant to quit the globe, which Boyle decided was ultimately a good thing. This invited us, thankfully, to reflect upon the wise goodness of the creator, who by giving air a spring, hath made it very difficult, as men find it, to exclude a thing so necessary to animals. But still, he strove to understand why. And he nearly, so very nearly, came upon the answer. His writings are full of speculations that come tantalizingly close to the mark. The difficulty we find of keeping flame and fire alive, though but for a little time, without air, makes me sometimes prone to suspect that there may be dispersed throughout the rest of the atmosphere some odd substance, either of solar or astral, or some other exotic nature, he wrote once, and another time, I have often suspected that there may be in the air yet some more latent qualities or powers due to the ingredients whereof it consists. The last moment is extraordinarily prescient. Nobody yet knew that air was a mixture of different gases. Even the notion of individual gases hadn't yet been invented. Air was an element, a pervasive substance that had no parts of, it, uh, parts of its own. This was the mountain of prejudice that had, begun, had yet to be overcome before the most extraordinary secrets of air would begin to emerge. The trouble with Boyle's air pump was it, re was it removed everything at once. If the power of air came from its individual ingredients, Boyle was never going to be able to separate them out. His combination of rational mind and vivid imagination had taken him thus far, but the next step continually eluded him. In the end, he turned to other things. As his eyesight grew still worse, he studied what little was known of the functions and maladies of the eyes. Ever hopeful, he seized on increasingly bizarre remedies such as blowing powdered dung into his eyes or bathing them in honey. Once, he had been able to read for 10 hours a day, but now he could barely make out the words on a page. Boyle's health continued to deteriorate along with his sight, and in 1691, at the age of 65, he died. In his will, Boyle bequeathed his scientific collections to the Royal Society, praying that they and all the other searchers into the physical truths may cordially refer their attainments to the glory of the great author of nature and to the comfort of mankind. Like Galileo and Torricelli before him, Boyle had never married, though he always wore a mysterious ring bearing two small diamonds and an emerald. He left this ring to his beloved sister Catherine, saying that she would know why. She, however, had just died a week earlier, and the secret died with her. The secrets of air, though, did not die. Those three great scientists of the 17th century, 
Galileo, Torricelli, and Boyle, two of them blind and one afraid of the Inquisition, had permanently changed the way we see our world. They had discovered that we live at the bottom of an ocean of air. Now, those who came after were about to discover the ways that the same ocean transforms a lump of rock and stone into a living, breathing planet. First, the answer that had perpetually eluded the frustrated boil. The spirit of air somehow gives life to both animals and flame. But how? 